Greetings, everyone. Welcome back for another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Eric Mills, the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine. Glad to be with you again. We're real excited about the new May-June issue. Hopefully you've received it or picked it up at the newsstand. If not, go out and get one today. It's a real hot one. We've got all sorts of great content in here from um, 80th anniversary looks at the Battle of Midway and the Battle of the Coral Sea by some real heavy hitters, John Parshall and um, John Prados. Um, there's a great medieval uh, history piece we'll be talking about on a podcast as well. Some stuff that you've probably never talked about or heard about before. Um, and lots of other great content. Um, we're going to kick off this issue's um, podcasts with a fascinating piece uh, that we're really thrilled to have gotten. Um, this is by Andrew K. Blackley, who um, was our cover um, story writer in uh, February of 21, with awesome, another awesome piece on uh, the um, loss of China and the first Sino-Japanese War and how that set the stage for the Pacific Age and uh, China's naval expansionist attitude today. It was a perfect example of how a story from the 1890s can have huge resonance and relevance in the 2020s. So... That's the kind of thing we like to see, where past is prologue, uh, and um, um, uh, Andy uh, won the 2021 CNN Naval History Essay Contest, uh, and that piece appeared in Proceedings. That was another fine piece, um, and he's back with us today to talk about his new article, but first a little about our guest. He's an independent scholar based in Ohio. Uh, he has an MA in History, cum laude, from Norwich University. Um, he has presented at the McMullen Naval History Symposium, and his work has appeared not only in uh, Naval History, but like I said, also in Proceedings and also the Naval Review. So please join me in welcoming Andrew K. Blackley. Thanks, Andy, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be back. Yeah, it's nice to have you here. Um, this was a great piece. Um, I have to admit, um, in the uh, there's always something more to learn category. I hadn't heard of this particular individual, but he had a profound influence on shaping and improving the early, uh, the U.S. Navy, right as we're emerging on the world stage. And uh, I'll just set the table for you and I'm gonna let you go. Uh, we're gonna go back in the Wayback Machine to 1907 and the launching of uh, President Roosevelt's vaunted Great White Fleet. Um, this individual that uh, Andy's gonna tell us about was a personal friend of President Roosevelt's, is actually um, on board one of the ships as it goes off on its worldwide tour Yet within weeks of that, a magazine article by this self-same individual appears that just absolutely blows the lid off uh, flaws in the um, great shiny new U.S. Navy uh, right as it's out making its uh, world debut. Uh, it caused a firestorm with the public and within the Navy itself, and this all actually led to a good outcome eventually. But um, Andy, please tell us about um, the gentleman in question. All right, so Henry or Henrik Reuterdahl, uh, was a Swedish immigrant. Uh, he was born in 1870 in Malmo, Sweden. Came from a, a upper middle class family. His uncle was the uh, Archbishop of Uppsala, a Lutheran Archbishop. Um, he was a talented uh, artist, a young Reuterdahl, and he just and he was um, an illustrator for magazines there in Sweden. And he was assigned in 1893 to cover the uh, the Great Columbia Exhibition uh, taking place in Chicago. And uh, he came to the United States, and uh, I think uh, even though he was from, you know, a solid middle-class background, like many people coming to the United States, uh, Swedish and Norwegian immigrants, 
he uh, fell in love with the country, and um, and certainly that, that exhibition was a, an exhibition of American progressivism and uh, industrial might. Uh, and he, I, I, as I say in the article, I think he also saw the the brick and wood version of the USS uh, Indiana, the USS Illinois, which uh, which remained there after the exhibition to be a training ship for the uh, Illinois Naval Militia. So I think that that probably triggered his love for the United States and everything we stood for as a progressive country uh, on the move and uh, making our way in the world. Uh, and I think it also triggered his love for the Navy. So he was, because he was so talented, he was picked up by uh, several American magazines and he started doing illustrations. He was assigned uh, to report on and illustrate the Spanish American war. And he did that very ably and, and uh, highlighted the, uh, the, the triumphs of the United States Navy and his, his artistry sort of evolved um, from the typical illustration of the 1890s into what I think is more of an impressionistic style. And, but he also could be very technically uh, a technical artist as well, especially when it came to showing the de details of everyday life. I, I think he's in the uh, sort of falls into the tradition of the great illustrators of the late uh, 19th, early 20th century, guys like Maxfield Parrish and, and especially Howard Pyle, who was a great uh, illustrator of historical uh, events and uh, and so on. So as a result of his and he, and he also was a self he had no no training as a naval officer or, or had any military service at all. But he he was self taught and uh, he became an, such an expert on naval matters that he was made the editor of James uh, All the World's Fighting Ships uh, for the American edition. Uh, he because of his artistry, he was hired by the U.S. Navy to design uh, the trophies for the gunnery contests that um, William S. Sims was doing uh, in 1903-1904. And this is, again, William S. Sims figures prominently in the story because he's really the guy uh, behind uh, what Roy Reddell is doing. Uh, Sims, as everybody should know, or if they don't know, Sims was a reformer and a progressive, and he had um, been the naval attaché in Paris from 1897 to 1900. Uh, he was then assigned to the East Asia Squadron, and uh, he was picked up by the USS Kentucky on, on its way through the Mediterranean out to the Far East. Uh, and on that voyage, this was a brand new ship. It had just been launched uh, just a short while previously. And uh, he was pretty much astounded at some of the things that he saw on the ship, and in particular the way the the, open, the gun port openings were huge, he thought. Uh, this is one of those first design that had an eight inch uh, separate gun turret mounted on top of the the, uh, the main gun turret. And these, both of these turned simultaneously. They did, not, they did not turn independently. And the theory was that the eight inch gun was gonna provide uh, a higher rate of firepower. Um, and then the large main guns, which loaded back then much more slowly, uh, would follow up later on. Um, and it also was part of the Navy's attempt to pack as much firepower as they could possibly get within within the limitations of uh, size and displacement that uh, had been imposed by Congress. So, but there were flaws in, in the design of this turret, and in particular, um, the new gun, uh, the new 12-inch gun that had its um, trunnions located too far away from the turret opening such that in order to get elevation, the openings in the turret face had to be extremely large. So as the gun elevated up and down in order for the barrel to clear the opening of the turret, 
the opening in the, had to be quite large. Um, and he, he made a joke that, that, you know, a small child could throw a baseball through that opening and it would fall all the way down into the bottom of the magazine. Hmm. Uh, and that was the other critique that he had was that the magazine, uh, or I should say the loading hoist for both the eight inch and, and the main gun uh, were open all the way down to the handling room at the, at the bottom. Now there was a door between the handling room at the bottom of the turret and the magazine. So that did provide some degree of protection, but in fact, when they were doing target practice or when they're trying to obtain a high rate of fire, they would have uh, bags of powder. So just to, so people understand the way that these guns operated, you had a very heavy projectile, which came up separately. It was followed then by two to four bags of, in silk of, of uh, grained uh, smokeless powder. And um, so this stuff uh, could be, it would not burn, explosively but it would it would be it could be ignited and it would let off poisonous gas and 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 high heat and it would basically if there was an accident in the turret it would it would in fact did kill everybody in the turret and this happened on on a number of occasions so this also was one of the things that that um, that ended up uh triggering the article that we're going to talk about right now the reuterdahl's uh, uh the needs of the navy so Sims uh, wrote a long letter to the Bureau of Ordnance and the Bureau of Construction and Repair outlining what he saw as all the defects in, in the design of this ship. Um, and that sort of just languished at the bureaus. Uh, he, at the same time, when he got out to the Far East, this is when he met um, Captain Percy Scott of the Royal Navy. And that is a whole other story, has been told, told elsewhere in naval history with the revolution in, in American gunnery. Um, as a result of Sims's efforts to improve uh, gunnery, he was appointed as the second uh, inspector of target practice in 1903. Uh, and, and with the full support of President Roosevelt, he made huge improvements in American gunnery and target practice. Um, so he had, at the time, he came into contact then with Reuterdahl because part of his, um, his training idea was that in order to provide motivation for gun crews, he wanted to have competition between ships. And uh, so the, his idea was that then he would have a beautiful trophy made that uh, the crew could be proud to, to, to display. Uh, and so that would that would increase the desire for competition and, and accuracy and so on. And and so he contacted Reuterdahl and Reuterdahl made these trophies. I've not seen one, I'd like to see one. I don't know if anyone still has one anymore. But Reuterdahl also would do murals for, for Sims and they became friends, um, and at one point, then Sims was going to use Reuterdahl as a journalist to start publicizing uh, the criticisms that he had um, in order to to sort of circumvent Navy regulation. At that time, a, a serving naval officer could not publish articles critical of the U.S. Navy in civilian publications. They could certainly do that in the pages of proceedings, but they could not do it uh, elsewhere. So to get around that, he, would, he wrote this article with Reuterdahl and uh, however, he told, this was in 1904, and he told Reuterdahl sort, sort of just to sit on it for the time being. But there had been uh, a series of at least four, and there probably were some other uh, minor turret accidents that were taking place. And part of this had to do with the conversion to smokeless powder. This, this ignited uh, uh, apparently more rapidly than, than the previous um, powder that they had used. 
there was an accident on the U.S. Missouri in 1904, another one on the cruiser New York in 1905. Uh, the Kearsarge, which was a sister ship to the Kentucky, uh, suffered an accident in 1906, and that was due to an electrical uh, mishap. Um, these early ships were using, uh, the turrets were being traversed with uh, electric gear that needed a lot of, um, in order to regulate the speed, they used a lot of switch gear and and uh, resistance circuits that created heat and, and sparks. And apparently one of the sparks came down and ignited a, a powder bag in the, in the ammunition hoist. And then finally, the last straw was in July of 1907, the USS Georgia also was engaging in target practice, uh, rapid fire. Uh, the aft turret uh, had a mishap and a number of men were killed, including the son, uh, Lieutenant Casper uh, uh, um, Goodrich Jr. He was the, the son of a, a prominent naval officer. Uh, and, this, and this, as I say, happened in the summer of 1907. And I think this was uh, at the same time Roosevelt was preparing the Great White Fleet to go around the world. Um, and uh, the United States at that time had a number of, of uh, battleships already in commission. If you consider that the Kearsarge and the Kentucky, uh, which were um, commissioned in 1900, were battleship five and six, um, it wasn't until battleship 20, 26, which is the USS South Carolina, that some of the faults in the ammunition hoist were actually corrected. That was you know, 21 battleships later. It's, it's sort of incredible to think about it. Um, here's a, a little tidbit I found in a newspaper article. I don't think I've seen this else, elsewhere, but the only survivor of the turret accident in the Georgia in July of 1907 was a midshipman by the name of Husband Kimball. Uh, as people will know, he was the, the uh, admiral in charge of uh, Pearl Harbor in, on December 7th, 1941, and he was pretty much hung with the blame for the uh, for the for that disaster. So unfortunately, he had a he, he was he survived one mishap that killed everybody, only to be caught up in another many years later in his career. Ah, small world. <laughs> yeah. So so at this point, then Sims um, contacted Reuterdahl again and said, "Okay, let's uh, let's move on this article." Reuterdahl rewrote it. He contacted uh, S.S. McClure, the publisher of McClure's magazine. Uh, McClure was known to be, you know, a muckraker in the age of muckrakers. <laughs> and uh, he had no problem saying, great, we'll do it. And so, uh, the, the, as you mentioned in the introduction, this magazine uh, article came out in late December of 1907, just as the Great White Fleet was entering, uh, I think, into, coming into Rio de Janeiro. No, uh, Trinidad, Port of Spain, Trinidad. It's first stop um, on the tour. Right, first stop on the tour. And Reuterdahl is with the fleet, and he was hired to go along to to illustrate, and he did make nice. In fact, your you know the the illustration you put up before was an illustration of the fleet in the in the harbor of Rio de Janeiro. That's pretty much typical of his illustrations of this era. Um, yeah. and, and so in. The officers on the ship, I don't know if they, they they were obviously in transit around the world. I don't know when they first actually saw the article itself, but most of them would not have disagreed with anything in it because they knew very well uh, the problems uh, that these ships were had. And they knew, you know, they had friends and uh, 
that died in these turret accidents. They knew that another turret accident could happen at any time. It was only by a miracle that more people uh, were not killed. Um, and one of the other things that Reuterdahl brought out in the article was the fact that uh, the ships, as they were designed and then as they were used in service, um, were overdraft. So they were designed to, in, by the Bureau of Construction and Repair, the halls were designed to, uh, for a normal water um, line of two-thirds the load of the ship, two-thirds of ammunition, water, and stores. That was considered the normal water line for design purposes. When these ships were actually used uh, and loaded fully as they were, as they started to transit around the world, or was they, or they might be when they went into combat, if they were, if they had a full load of water, ammunition, full crew, and stores, uh, they found then that, that, uh, that the displacement increased. And as a result, the ship now was, the water line was as much as two or more feet above the armor belt. Um, and so essentially the armor belt was now submerged. And one of the officers remarked that, that now they were just a line of very slow armored cruisers. And, you know, their main armor was, was submerged, um, which would leave them very vulnerable. The, the loss of, of when the ship also went down and uh, I should say when the water line rose, the, uh, as a result, the more water would ship over the bows, uh, the secondary guns and were practically useless in, in any kind of seaway because of the water coming uh, along the hull. Uh, the open, the open openings on the, on the fore turret on the bow also would ship a lot of water as well. Um, so there were a number of defects like that in, in the design of, of really in all the ships in the fleet. And the other thing is that um, the HMS Dreadnought had been gone into commission uh, in 1907 as well. And it pretty much uh, made obsolescent the entire fleet. I mean, it was, you know, it would take the first U.S. Dreadnought was the USS Carolina, and that would not come into I don't think that was in commission until 1910, you know, two, two, two years later. Um, so these ships are, you know, they were called pre-dreadnoughts. Uh, they were, you know, they were good. They were, you know, the admirals on them all said we would be glad to fight these ships and we don't have any problem with them. But in reality, they, they did have problems. And as a result of this article appearing in McClure's, um, it also then was repeated in newspapers all over the country. I found you know, newspaper articles that were published in, in late December, January that said, hey, the U.S., you know, this, the Great White Fleet that, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was was um, was using the Great White Fleet as a as a, as a huge uh, public relations um, uh, tool to promote the, the idea of a Navy. I mean, he also was, wanted to demonstrate to the Japanese that we could, in fact, transit a fleet to the Pacific when we had to. This was, you know, the Panama Canal would not be completed for another, what, uh, six, seven years. Uh, there had been some tension with Japan over immigration and, and race riots in, in San Francisco and in California. Uh, that had sort of been tamped down. Um, Japan, I think, was grateful to Teddy Roosevelt for his uh, helping them to come to a good settlement with the, with the Russo-Japanese War. But anyhow, Roosevelt wanted to be able to demonstrate to the Japanese that we could move a fleet uh, into the Pacific when we had to. And then it was really, it was indeed a technical tour de force that, that this fleet of ships was able to tra transit 40,000 plus miles all the way around the world. They were not in the greatest condition when they got back, but they still could do it. And that was, 
that was pretty impressive um, that they that they're able to do that. Yeah, I mean, they looked great, and it was you know it was quite a dazzling um, display of power to go around the world with it and all that. But the thing that was interesting to me about uh, Henry Reuter Dahl is he was the right man at the right moment with the right sentiments to make this difference. He not only was a very skilled illustrator, he had a um, really great sense of um, naval architecture at this point and ship design and the ergo ship design flaws. But he loved, he was criticizing the U.S. Navy because he loved the U.S. Navy. Right. He, he was all on board with uh, what TR wanted to do with a powerful fleet and all that. He wanted it to be an effective fleet and he spoke out. Um, and it really is kind of uh, uh, exasperating when you see how, you know, Sims was contacting these bureaus over and over again about these mistakes. And he was just a voice crying in the wilderness. And as I was reading about this in your article, the Bureau of uh, Construction and Repair and the Bureau of Ordinance, I was reminded of the fact that the root word for bureaucracy is bureau. And they really just stonewalled all this. And then even when they're called out on it, the American taxpayers made aware of it. They just sort of have sort of an inconclusive kangaroo court style hearing and still nothing happens. Um, but at least the cat was out of the bag and it took a magazine that was willing to be a little muckraking and Sims who was willing to like stir the pot because nothing else was working and Reuterdahl who was a talented enough artist, illustrator and um naval technician, if you will, that finally got the word out about this. Um, eventually, eventually, improvements started to be made, as you point out. So there is kind of a protracted later happy ending to it all. Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah. So as a result of the article, um, there was a Senate hearing, and as you say, it, it sort of it, it attempted to whitewash everything. Uh, they had uh, uh, George Converse, uh, who had been the, the head of the Bureau of Ordnance when some of this stuff was designed, and Washington L. Capps, uh, who was the chief constructor of the Navy, uh, come and give their testimony. And they testified basically that, hey, our ships aren't any worse than anybody else's. They're designed to the same standards and so on. In fact, they said our waterline design is the same as used in the British Navy. Well, uh, a commander by the name of Albert L. Key came, uh, and he was a friend of Sims and another one of these progressive reformers. He was the last guy to give testimony at the Senate hearing, and he had with him extensive charts and statistics. So before they were treating the testimony of Sims and the others uh, at Bradley Fisk and, and other guys as just hearsay of malcontents, uh, now Commander Key came forward and he had all the statistics you could want, and he compared uh, the draft of uh, Royal Navy ships uh, in service with that of uh, U.S. Navy ships in service, and the, the evidence was damning. Now, the, it was fortunate that the evidence was published in the Senate hearings, and that's how I found it. I mean, it's available uh, through a Google search, but it was not published. It wasn't, wasn't made known. The hearings uh, were basically went into executive session, and they never came out again. And that was the end of it as far as hopefully they thought as far as the, senator was, the Senate committee was, was concerned. Key, however, was also at the time uh, overseeing the construction of another ship uh, in the adjacent to where he was working. The, I think it was the, um, the new uh, North Dakota was under construction. And he noticed that there were some problems now cropping up into the design of that ship having to do with, again, the secondary guns placed too low, uh, 
the steam pipes. The, the, this was these were the latest versions of dreadnoughts, the super, almost super dreadnoughts, which had you know super firing guns. They had uh, three um, uh, barbette uh, barbettes located in the aft section. So one between the two engine rooms and and two super firing turrets in, in the stern. And it was this third turret between the engine rooms that he thought was going to would be liable. Uh, to having his ammunition overheated. And that, of course, could be disastrous with the smokeless powder. It was very temperature sensitive. So he wrote letters, and these were ignored, but this time he copied his friend William S. Sims, who by this time was now uh, Teddy Roosevelt's naval aide. And so he got uh, President Roosevelt involved in it right away. So President Roosevelt uh, called a um, for a special... Uh, committee to, to meet at the Naval War College. This is, you know, the famous uh, battleship conference of 19 of summer of 1908. Uh, he is presiding. And again, it's sort of the same uh, people now. It's larger number of, of individuals arranged on one side or the other, the bureau uh, officers and people who had worked in the bureaus on one side and line officers like Sims and others who would be in charge of fighting the, these actual ships and again, unfortunately, it was it pretty much reached a, a consensus that, yeah, you make some good points, but we're too far along in the construction and design of these of the, this series of ships. Uh, they're going to stay the way they are. And it really the heart, the problem was, of course, the, the bureau system and the bureaus, Bureau of Ordnance and Bureau of Construction Repair, Bureau of Navigation. Uh, they had a, over them a Navy secretary who was a political appointee, but a, a gentleman who would have no naval experience whatsoever. And because of the nature of Teddy Roosevelt and his administration, he went through a number of Navy secretaries during his administration. So there always was some flux uh, in the secretariat at the top. And pretty much the bureaus were running things the way they liked it. And the general board was in existence then as well, but it had, uh, it was only an advisory board. It had no authority whatsoever. So as a result of this uh, battleship conference, the design defects were noted, they would be corrected in subsequent designs. The ships that were being designed at that time would come out as the USS New York and the USS Texas. Uh, and then you had the um, USS Nevada and, and ships of, of, of that standard battleship design that then became the standard uh, really of, of the ships that, that were at Pearl Harbor and, and fought in the Second World War as well. So a lot of those defects were, were, were in fact corrected and, and I think you know, certainly by the, the time of uh, uh, the First World War, I think the United States was building some of the best battleships in the world, bar none. Uh, but it took a, another Navy secretary, uh, von, um, Myers and uh, the Taft administration, to get that, get that done. And it took the creation, Congress had to create the Office of the Chief of Naval Operations uh, to be able to oversee the, and have some authority over the, over the work of the bureaus and, and battleship design. Right. That, that was one of the greatest things to come out of it was in 1915, the creation of the CNO. Um, and I think that was a huge step toward fixing these kind of bureaus, kind of doing as they saw fit, nothing, not letting anything um, stop what they had decided they were going to do. But it really is frustrating the process, isn't it? How uh, a flawed program or design kind of develops a momentum of its own and there becomes this entrenched determinedness to pursue this, even though there's obviously mistakes in this, fatal errors in this. 
yet somehow it just gets pushed on through. Um, it, it's kind of like a story you see in modern times as well with like a ship design or whatever that it sounds great on paper, but there's obviously problems with it, but it's got kind of like its own momentum and it just keeps on going. So I feel like this story really resonates um, today as well. I mean, if there were a Henry Reuter doll today, um, he would probably not have as much trouble getting his voice out there. Of course, we have so many more media that you can go out there on. Um, Maybe he'd write for USNI News, uh, you know, report for yeah, USNI News. You I, know. I'm, always, I'm always impressed how you know, in, officers aren't shy about criticizing littoral ships or the or the Zumwalt class, you know, as being all these sort of canards and white elephants. Um, so there's certainly, you know, thank God for proceedings and, and, the, and the independent uh, voice of, of the Navy. Um, that's why I, so I'm a civilian. I give it my full support. Um, I think it's so important to the defense of this country to have a strong Navy. And, and so, as you say, um, I'm hoping that, uh, that those ref reformers are there and that, that we will reach a policy. And, and the other thing, you know, the, the thing that, that we need to do is build some political support. That was sort of the point of the article I, that I wrote last year that got second place in the CNO contest. Or to new navalism, look it up. Right. Yes, thank you. And it has to do with the idea we need political support uh, in Congress in order to fund the Navy. We can talk all day long about what it should look like or what Navy policy should be and so on, but unless the money is there to build the, to build the ships that we need, it's all just talk. Yep. Yep, absolutely. And that's the age-old Capitol Hill battle for the Navy. Um, <laughs> yeah, but at least, can't, you can't live with them, can't live without them. Right? Yeah. <laughs> at least there is a more open um, ability um, to see what's going on and where the mistakes are being made. And uh, it can't just get shoved under the rug at some bureau in basket and nothing done about it. Uh, at least knock on wood. I'd like to think that's the case. Right. I, I, you know, I, I don't think there were any real villains. You know, these guys all thought that they were doing the right thing. I mean, the process were, was the villain, if anything. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, Washington L. Caps, there was an, you know, he had an article a couple of years ago on the, on the first dreadnought and he is the, the hero of the article, deservedly so. He was the guy that came up with the idea of, of having uh, super firing turrets and, and he designed uh, the first American dreadnought, and you know it was he did a lot within the constraints that he was given by Congress. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, and the, the irony is that he was he knew the design. He was that ship was under design when 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 these things were going on. He knew what 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 the the right way to do things. Mm -hmm. um, but as you say, they you know for political reasons, they just sort of had to hope it they would go away. Well, it's a it's a really um, fascinating historical story as fable, if you will. And at the heart of it is um, a civilian who loved the Navy and brought his great talents to help improve it and wasn't afraid to speak truth to power, if you will. And let's hope there are more Henry Reuter dolls out there today and going forward for the good of the fleet. Yeah, so I mean, so Reddledaw went on to he continued to illustrate. He he went with uh, Sims when Sims was in command of the USS Minnesota. Mm -hmm. uh, as it says in the article, he became uh, one of the first when the Navy U.S. Navy Reserve was created in the First World War. He became a lieutenant and eventually a lieutenant commander. Uh, so he did serve in the Navy when he when he actually was given the chance to do so. That's right. That's right. He became a reservist. In fact, the picture of him we have, it's this great uh, photo, and you'll see it in the article. Uh, 
he's uh, painting this big, like wall-sized, gorgeous thing, and he's at his work as the artist at work. But he's wearing a Naval Reserve officer's uniform, which is kind of neat. He's well, also and, credited uh, with with designing and, the wing, the Navy aviation wings. Mm. Um, that was something oh, right. to, that I found. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's very. It, it, see, uh, yeah, I'd like to see some of those trophies he designed. They have to I be. Well, Andy, I'm, I'm curious, uh, is there anything you're working on currently that you care to share? Um, yeah, so I've been, a couple of, pa the paper I did at McMullen, I just came back from the uh, Society for Military History Conference, been working on another sort of unsung naval officer of that era, a guy by the name of uh, uh, Albert Niblack, who was a roommate and friend of Sims, and he also, uh, his career spanned the transformation of the Navy from uh, 1880 to 1923, from, you know, Civil War wooden hulled ships to really a Navy that was comparable, if not equal to the Royal Navy at the time. Um, I also have an article that I'm reworking that an article I, I did a long time ago in the Naval Review, but I'm rewriting uh, on the dreadnought hoax. I don't know if you know if you're familiar with that or not, but that is and another that one. The bell. I'll be very intrigued to uh, see more on this. Uh, I'm glad you're um, plugging away on these great naval topics, and it's always a pleasure to have you on here, Andy. Um, and we look forward to having you on here again, which means we look forward to uh, seeing more articles from you in the future. Because so far uh, you're at a thousand with us, pal. Um, thank you. Bring them on. Um, thanks for joining us today. And I, for those listening, I'd remind you if you're not a member of the Naval Institute yet. Go to our website, uh, just Google USNI, you'll find it, follow the prompts, become part of the discussion today, become a member. Um, all access to all this great archive and trove of material from, from 1874 on, uh, there's a whole lot there for you. And if this, these topics are of interest to you, you really wanna be a part of it. So I invite you to join and you can see right there what to go to, to uh, find out more. But thanks for joining us for another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Eric Mills, and we'll see you next time.